back to the catechism question, this question is 67. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? If you would read the answer with me. The fourth commandment forbids dishonoring the Lord's day by actions or thoughts that divert the soul from spiritual refreshment or deprive the body of renewed energy or distract the mind from a special Sabbath focus on the Lord. Um, all these things, if you're curious, are on that digital hymnal, and you can kind of follow along. And if you're kind of confused about anything from that catechism question, or even just interested in any of the responsive readings that we've done, if you're kind of new to this type of worship style, um, then please use that hymnal, and um, you can kind of go back and look. Uh, we are in the book of Luke, and we shall be here for just a few more weeks. And then we're going to transition into kind of an unusual thing for us to do here. We are going to do somewhat of a topical uh, sermon series on marriage. Um, and we'll be going through uh, basically different passages on marriage. And, uh, and it's, you know, if some of you who aren't married, you're like thinking about checking out. No, this is, this is very important for you as well. Um, and you're, or if you desire to be married or interested in being married in the future, this is important things to know. Um, and so this is a great way for you uh, who aren't married to really uh, gather a lot of, of good uh, biblical understanding of what marriage is and what its purpose is. Okay. So, um, so I want to encourage you that. That will start the first Sunday of February. Uh, so we're kind of using the Valentine's month uh, to our advantage and talking about that. So if you, if you, have, um, if you have friends or uh, anyone that you know that would be encouraged by that, just kind of... Mark that down somewhere, and uh, we'll be talking about it again in the near future. And just invite them to be a part of that. So that will start from February. So right now we're in the book of Luke, and Luke chapter 11 is where we are. You have a Bible. And we'll be reading uh, chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. Now he was casting out a demon... That was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking for him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you said that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, they, they will be your judges. But if, if it is by the fingers of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text, Lord, this passage, Lord, to... To, to be encouraged by, to be challenged by, Lord. Lord, we've said a lot already this morning. We've sang a lot already this morning, Lord. And may that just kind of help us, Lord, as we enter into this text. 
Lord, may we understand that, Lord, that you are God, that you are Lord, and you should be praised. Lord, we, should, we would understand, Lord, that we have sinned against you. We have sinned against you this week. We have sinned against you this morning. We have sinned against you, Lord. That is our nature. And Lord, we confess those to you. Lord, we are assured by our grace. We are assured by our pardon that you have saved us through Christ. That you have transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Through our faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you for that. We have given our offering to you. We have given our, our money, things that we have set aside, Lord. That our, our, our first offerings, that, that our, the, the, the select first uh, uh, fruit, Lord, from our work, Lord, that we have given and provided, Lord. Lord, we come this morning also to learn from your word, and I pray that you would instruct us, Lord. We pray for those who are with us, Lord, for holiday reasons and traveling, and we pray that you would be with them and bring them back safely, Lord. For those who aren't here because they have wondered a little bit, they, they have uh, gotten out of the habit of gathering with your, with your, with your body, Lord, I pray that you would convict them of that and, and encourage them to come back. Lord, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We pray for churches in this area, Lord, who are faithfully preaching your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would be with them. For those who aren't faithfully preaching your word, Lord, they would be convicted and repent and move back into faithfulness. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this uh, sermon is Postmodern Christianity, the American Religion. And uh, this past week, um, this is unusual for our family. We don't typically go to Nashville twice in two weeks. Like, that's typically not usual. But the past two weeks, we have gone to Nashville. Um, the first was to visit my wife's family. We visit Lisa's family who live in Brooklyn for Christmas, you know, what you do. The second reason we went down there was not to see family, but to go see the Broadway show, uh, Hamilton. And my mother-in-law... Uh, sweet lady that she is, bought me, basically bought me tickets for my birthday and for Christmas. And uh, because she knows that I, I enjoy the show, enjoy the music, and I like political things and U.S. history, and so um, she did that for me. It was a wonderful show. I really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, it, it, it's one of those, it was, it, I learned a little bit more. I'm very, when, you, when you go see a movie or you go see a show about something like that, you're interested in wanting more, so you go and like, you Google it, like you learn a little bit more information about certain characters of history. And I was, after I watched the show, I was very interested in Aaron Burr. I was like learning a little bit more about him because he's a prominent character in the show, Hamilton. He's kind of the, the, well, I mean, throughout history, he was the rival of Alexander Hamilton. And if you know, if you know your history or forgot your history, there was the, the famous duel where Aaron Burr, who was the vice president at the time, shot and killed Alexander Hamilton, who was one of the founding fathers. And uh, this happened in 1804. Uh, and so Aaron Byrd is really kind of a villain of American history. Uh, if you don't know this, Aaron Byrd is the grandson of the great theologian, the great, great first American theologian of Jonathan Edwards. And, and Aaron Byrd came from a very rich theological and church background, and he is now considered a villain of American history. And so he... The interesting thing about Aaron Burr is that throughout his life, throughout his political life and professional life, he was very much considered an opportunist. He, he says in the show, he says to Hamilton, because Hamilton walks up to him and says, hey, you know, I'm Alexander Hamilton, and I want to know how I can get the scholarship that you had in King's College. And there's the famous quote that uh, he kind of says to Hamilton in the show. He says, talk less, smile more. 
hey, let's just look like, like, what do you mean don't talk more? Are we supposed to tell people what we believe and what we think? And Bert says, no, 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 never tell people what you think. Never let them know what you're thinking. He says later on in one of the other shows, he's, he's kind of calling out Hamilton's friends, and they're getting really excited about the revolution, and they, they're excited about gathering more people into, their, into the revolutionary cause. And Ehrenberg says, lower your voices, you keep out of trouble, and you double your choices. If with you, but I'm with you, but the situation is fraught, you've got to be carefully taught. If you talk, you're going to get shot. Again, he's saying, like, don't let people know what you think. Like, don't ever let anyone know what your opinion is or what your views are, right? He believed that the, the careful he is with his words, the less he hid from people, the more likely he would be given the power that he wanted. There's another song in the show where he says, I want to be in the room where it happens, right? I want to be in that room where the, where the action happens, where decisions are made. I want power, and so the best way I can get power is to not let anyone know what I think. That was such a bad decision because that was the reason why Hamilton hated Burr. He believed that Burr was an opportunist, that he talked, he, 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 made, he had no uh, loyalty. He, had, he was known to have no party, no cause, no friends. He didn't want to ever side with any particular group or people. And Hamilton says he's not to be trusted with the reins of government. He's never to be trusted, but why? Because we don't know what he thinks. We don't even know what he believes. We don't even know what he's passionate for. We've known him for years. We've fought with him. We've argued with him. And we have no idea what he believes. Because he was an opportunist. And that's why he was so hated. Because he was a somewhat of a middle ground person. He never picked sides. He never picked sides. And that's kind of one of the things I want to talk about. The heresy of the middle ground. The heresy of kind of playing the fence. And I think that's one of the biggest issues of this passage, that you have these individuals that uh, in some ways are playing the fence. They're not faithful. The first point here is the people who marvel in opposition. The people who marvel in opposition. So we get to this passage here in Luke 11, 30 verse 14. And we already learned in the passage before, Jesus taught, teaches us how to pray. But then he transitions. There's a completely new section that is ushered in, starting in verse 14. There's very little connection between one through, one, uh, 14 and verses 1 through 13. There's a, a complete change in the mood of this, this chapter. And it starts in 14, and it really goes all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 54. There's a whole massive section where Jesus is dealing with opposition of his identity and of his teachings. And so we get to kind of the, the, the action, the episode starts. I love to think of the Jesus stories as episodes, as if it was this massive TV show. And this was an episode. This is a new episode in the show, right? Starting in verse 3, he says, He was casting out a demon that was mute. So Jesus is, is casting out a demon. Doing an exorcism of a man who was mute. When the demon came out, the mute man started to speak. Okay, so obviously Jesus has done something quite remarkable. A man who was demon possessed, who couldn't, because of his demon possession, couldn't speak. The other gospel writers said that he was deaf. And maybe this is something he's 
He's dealt with a lot of his life. This is the cause of it is a demon possession. And Jesus casts out the demon, and the man immediately starts to speak. There's a visible, physical change that has happened with this man. And it says that the people marveled. But marvel here is not a positive term. It's a negative term. We're getting a little bit more information and description of their marveling. They weren't rejoicing. They weren't celebrating. They weren't going, wow, how great Christ is. He must be the Son of God. He must be the Son of David. No, 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 no. They marvel in opposition and skepticism. They shouldn't be too surprised of Jesus' action. Jesus has been uh, doing this. He has been uh, taking out demons out of people several different times before this particular incident. There's the one in Luke 4, 33-35. He's in the city of Capernaum. He, cleans, he, he casts out this unclean spirit. All the people were all amazed. The reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding area. So people shouldn't be surprised. These people in this particular episode shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' action. He's done it before. Reports of his actions have spread from the surrounding areas. In verse 41 of chapter 4, Demons came out of the many. He cast out demons out of many people. In Luke 8, 27-37, the garrisons, the man who had the legion of demons in him, right, the thousand of demons that were in this one man, uh, he commanded the demons to come out. He casted them in the pigs, and the pigs went into the lake, right, and they drowned. And the people in the city, in the town, the village, were, were um, seized with great fear, Luke says. In 9, 37 through 47, there's a demon-possessed boy. Jesus rebuked it, and all were astonished by what Christ did. This demon-possessed boy had been struggling with this possession his entire life. His father uh, asked Jesus to um, clean the demon from him, and Jesus does, and they were all amazed. Uh, you even have the disciples themselves in, in nine, chapter 9, verse 1, who cast out demons in Jesus' name. Jesus is not even with them when he cast out demons. In 949, we see that a man who wasn't even a disciple cast out demons in the name of Christ. Then in 1017, other people that, had, that were followers of Jesus that Jesus sends out, the 70, are casting out demons in Jesus' name. So this is not something that is new. But yet, Jesus casts out this demon of this mute man. He, this man begins to speak. And they marvel in opposition and skepticism. It says that really the focus of this particular episode is on one particular group, and that is the opponents. The wings that are very much against Christ. And see this action as something to, to rebuke. And so these opponents, uh, Matthew 9.34 says that they were Pharisees. These they, these, these, this other, these other people. These Pharisees, if you're new to the gospel, if you don't know what Pharisees are, basically they're the religious elite. They're the ones that are, are self-righteous. Uh, they're full of themselves. Okay? You should probably put in your mind someone that you've met down your, throughout your life that you may be able to connect this sense of elitism, right? Even they were elitist. They were the cream of the crop. The groups that you wanted your daughters to marry, really. Right? They were the guys that like they were perfect in every way. They were good. They they dressed right. They cleansed themselves well. They worked hard. They knew the right people. They're the cream of the crop. Uh, Mark says that they were scribes from Jerusalem. The usual villains in the life of Christ are these guys. These are the villains. 
But some of them, some of those, said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They, he said, they said, what? They said that Jesus is an agent of Satan. What this is, is his propaganda against Christ. They can't deny that the miracle didn't happen, right? They can't deny that, whoa, 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 what happened was it was a magic trick. And that wasn't going to work, okay? Jesus has done this too, many, too often, and the people were too uh, convinced of his power, that they couldn't say, oh, this is a magic trick. He is, a, he is, a, uh, he is someone who, who does tricks. That wasn't going to work. The man was demon-possessed, he was mute, and now he speaks. That's not a trick that most physicians know how to do. The, the demon was cast out, it was thrown out. It was taken out, it was thrown away, it was removed permanently. If you think about this in basketball, I mean, this is like someone... I mean, he's rejected it completely. I mean, he has swatted the thing away. It's gone. Permanently removed. The mute man started to speak again. There's visible proof. He began to... It's like someone who's crippled who begins to walk again. It's visibly apparent that the actions of Christ worked. That they were effective. There was power in his actions. There's no reason to make the argument that the miracle by Christ never occurred. It definitely occurred. So that wasn't going to work. So they had to come up with another way to rebuke Christ or to say that his miracle and his work was not from God. The new attack is the source of his power. And even going kind of forward in time in John 11, 47, basically the, 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 the same guys, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests of Jerusalem... Jesus' um, Jesus' popularity had grown. They're like, what are we going to do with this guy? And basically they come up with the, 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 the play, the option, the, the strategy. Say, say his power comes from Satan. That's how we're going to get people to not follow this guy. Say that his work is all from Satan. They, they even said in John 11, 47, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. If everyone believes in him, then we're going to lose our power. Go back into, even, I know I want to go back into the uh, birth story of Christ. Right? My, one of my favorite birth stories is not the Luke story, but the Matthew story, because it takes us, it gives us the wise man story, and it puts the, 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 the coming of Christ into Jerusalem. Right? There's that scene in Matthew chapter 2 where the wise men come to Herod the Great, the king, and say, hey, I heard there's a king that's being born. Where is he going to be born? And John, Herod the Great's like, what are you talking about? What king? I'm the king. What king? Is being born in my country that's not from my blood. Right? This is and it's an interesting little take because it says the people of Jerusalem were troubled. They were troubled by the news. Why are they troubled? Because they see that their power is going to be removed from some outside force. And they are threatened by this. And of course, they assemble all the all the, the scribes and all the, 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 the smart people of Jerusalem, and they come together and they figure out where Jesus is going to be born. They find out he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and they what do they do? They send the troops to kill all the born boys. Why? Because they want to kill the threat to their power. And this is really Game of Thrones going on, man. Right? Either you win the Game of Thrones or you die. This is really what's going on in Matthew chapter two and throughout the life of Jesus. They see Jesus as a threat to hit their power. And so what is their political tactic? Their political tactic is, their propaganda is to say, his source of his power comes from Satan. This is basically, if you ever watch uh, CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, 
and there's an event that happens, and someone gives this propaganda, like false explanation to kind of say, well, it can't legitimately come from this person because we don't like this person, we don't like their political views, so we're going to say, we're going to lie, or we're going to say something false. They, what do they call him? They say he's the ruler of the demons. He's an agent of Satan. Basically saying that Jesus is a Nazi, right? I mean, Jesus is the worst of the worst. He's the Lord of the flies. He's the prince of Baal. He's the chief god of the Philistines. Basically, it's been calling someone an agent of Islamic terrorism, right? How do they do what they do? Well, because they're an agent of darkness. They're an agent of evil. This is nothing less left but the Satan Association play, right? We've got nothing else to call him out on, so we'll come up with the Satan play. We'll call, we'll, we'll call this the Hail Mary play. We've got nothing else to, to, else to offer, so he has to be from Satan. They associate him with the most evil name they could possibly come up with. They came up with Beelzebub. They hated Christ. The mention of his name was an emotional trigger. They were angry with him. They ultimately, they were angry with who? God. Right? They were ultimately angry with God. This can't be God's plan. This can't be what God had promised in the Old Testament. This can't be true. He must be from Satan. One of my, one of my, if you go, if you started any Bible reading plans this week, you probably ran Psalms chapter two, baby. If you're doing like the four chapters, right? If you're doing the Redeemer, uh, I don't know if this is on the Redeemer uh, Bible reading plan, but some Bible reading plans you read like uh, a book from the, uh, the history books, and then you read a book from like Psalms or Proverbs and the New Testament. So this week I read a few Psalms this uh, this week, and I read Psalms chapter two. Psalms chapter two is a interesting psalm. What does the psalmist say? This is David. He says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why are the, basically, the kings of the earth are tic-tac-off. They're raged. I love that term. The psalmist used the word rage. They hate God. They're ticked off at God. They saw Jesus as a false messiah from hell. They hated Christ. And everything he stood for, everything he taught, everything he did... They hate These other groups that we see here in, in Luke chapter 11 are the others, right? You had some who saw, saw him as an agent of Satan, and others, it says, to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. As if cleansing this man of a, of, of, of a demon wasn't a sign of enough. It wasn't a sign enough. They asked for more. They were never going to be convinced, were they? And so they ask him for more signs and more signs and more signs. And he will get to them a little bit later in this chapter more directly. But So they want to test him. And I think the testing here is not a positive term. It's a, it's a, it's a mocking intent. They want to mock him. Hey, why don't you show us more signs? You magician, you trickster, show us more signs. It says in Mark 12, 13 through 50, the same word, the same Greek word, their intentions, the Pharisees, were to trap him, to test him. Why not put him to the test? Testing here is a taunting, verbally abusing, to mock. What they did on the cross, what did they do? They mocked him, right? Come down from the cross, do what you did to all those other people. Heal yourself. It's a mocking. That's what these people are doing. They're slandering him. They're blaspheming him. They say, hey, 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 test, let me test you. Let's, let's trap you. Let's, 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 why don't you do another sign for us? 
Jesus was treated like a carnival act. Like a, like, a, like a freak. Do a dance for us, monkey. Do one for us. Do a test, do a sign for us. Even Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty nine, he calls them an evil generation for this action. This was evil. Those who hate him and mock him have no place with him. The issue is not a lack of rational understanding or accurate proofs. As if Jesus needed to reason with them with Old Testament texts to convince them that he is the true Messiah. The issue at hand is their unbelief is rooted in anger. Resentment is maybe a better word. Their unbelief is rooted in resentment. They're enraged with God. They make up reasons for why he should be rejected, why Christ should be rejected. Oh, he's from Galilee. He's from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from there. Nothing good ever comes from Galilee. He can't possibly be the Messiah. He's from, a, he's from a carpenter boy, right? He's Joseph's son. He possibly, there's no way he could be the Messiah. There's no way he could be the Son of God. He's an agent of Satan. There's no way he's from God. They're enraged. They burst their bonds and cast away their cords, the psalmist says. They hate God. They want to burst their cords. They don't want to be under authority from God. Their anger is true for many who claim to be atheists. This anger is very true for those who claim to be atheists. It's not that they don't believe in God. They hate God. They're angry with him. You can't be angry with God and hate God and also not believe him at the same time. However, this explanation is a more straightforward look at this episode. There's a deeper conflict at hand. The second point is a stronger force has invaded the world. Or a better way to say it, a stronger force has invaded your world. So Jesus knows their thoughts. I love that. Those phrases are awesome, right? That Jesus the entire time, which basically says that Jesus didn't audibly hear them, as if they're whispering together, like they're kind of like having these like little group therapy sessions together. They're kind of meeting together and say, hey, I think he's an agent of Satan, you know? And Jesus knows their thoughts. It's very scary, isn't it? I mean, Psalms just says in 139, 134, God, the Lord knows all things. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He, he concerns your thoughts from afar. Nothing escapes his gaze. He's the ultimate teacher, right? I mean, think of Jesus as a school teacher. You couldn't whisper to yourselves. Like, Jesus would know your actual thoughts. He sees and hears everything. Every kingdom divided against itself is led to west, Jesus says. He kind of, he has this conversation. He, he responds to their statements about him. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. Basically, laid to waste is a better way to say it's depopulized by civil war. When you have a civil war, when a kingdom is divided against itself, what typically happens? A lot of people die. A divided household fails. When a kingdom or a nation or a house is at divisions or at odds with one another, and there is a civil war, it's a devastating thing that happens to a kingdom or a nation. What did Lincoln say in 1858? This is in the Stephen Douglas debate he had with him when he was running for Senate in Illinois. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. What happened? What was the consequence of the civil war? I was reading about this. They say about 700,000 people died. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a lot of people. When you think about the nation today, it's like we're, I think we're close to 400 million people. 700,000 isn't a huge amount of people in response to 300 million people. But in that, there's only 30 million people in the United States in the 1860s. And if you include just the age, 
That would have included one-tenth of every military-aged man. One-tenth of the population as the effect of a civil war. In the South, 22.6% of Southern men between the ages of 20 through 24 died during the Civil War. Think about that. That's almost a quarter of the Southern men between the ages of 20 and 24 died in the war. That will destroy an economy. That will destroy a region or a nation when that many working people die. Civil War was devastating to the United States. In a more recent Civil War, in the Syrian Civil War, 400,000 people have died in Syria. Because of the, I think the war started in 20, 2011. Six million people have fled the country. Six million. That's a lot of people. They're now refugees because of a civil war. Civil wars cause division. It depopulates. It's devastating. And Jesus is basically saying, why would Satan have a civil war with himself? A civil war in Satan's kingdom, if Christ is an agent of Satan and working to overthrow Satan, how will his kingdom stand? Why would Satan use Christ to destroy his own kingdom and his own agenda? That doesn't make any sense. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it makes little sense that I'm an agent of Satan trying to overthrow Satan. That doesn't make any sense. It has to be, I am from God. This is by the power of God that I do what I do. If Christ's miracles and work is not by the power of Satan, then it is by the power of God. If it is by the power of God, then God's kingdom has invaded the world. God's kingdom has come into the world. God's beloved Son has invaded the world. Go back to Psalms chapter 2. What is God's response to this enraging of the nations? They're bursting their cords and their bonds. He says, God sits in heaven and laughs. And he says that he will set his king on Zion, his holy hill. He even says, the Lord, the Lord said to me, or says to his king, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God has set his king, his son, in power. Christ has come into the world. His power is on display. The episode is evident that the fact and that reality that Christ's kingdom or God's kingdom has come into the world. And it is a threat to Satan's kingdom. You would think that these Jewish religious leaders would be praising God. Wouldn't you think that if they are followers of God and they love God's law, they would be rejoicing? And praising his name. Our Messiah is here. He's finally come. But instead, these opponents, these skeptics, are part of Satan's kingdom and not God's kingdom. It's an important point in this story. That the people that are real agents of Satan or Beelzebub is not Jesus, but the ones who call him agents of Satan. They didn't recognize the power of God in their actual midst. Visibly, they did not recognize the power of God. They were clearly spiritually dead. Jesus continues, he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his own castle, his goods are safe. When a strong man, when a powerful leader with an army is guarded, 
guards his goods and his treasures in his castle, it's difficult to raid that palace or that castle and take what is his. No one has been powerful enough to be a threat to the strong man's treasure. This is talking about Satan and his kingdom, the souls in his kingdom. What is the values of Satan's kingdom? Opposition to God, self-rule, freedom from God's authority. They do not honor God. This is what this Paul says in Romans 1.21. They do not honor God. They worship the creation and not the creator. They do not honor God. Romans 8, 7, 8, 7, 8, they, they set their minds on the flesh and they are hostile to God. They, don't, they can't submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. They do what is displeasing to God. Those are values of Satan's kingdom. They enjoy their freedom from God. Paul says in 1.25-26 in Romans, he says that those who are against God worship, like I said, worship the creation over the creator. They worship the world. They worship the earth. They worship the things that are against, that are opposed to God. They, are, they, do, they, they, they do dishonorable passions. They are passionate about things that are dishonorable. And so what is it talking about? What are Satan's goods? His goods are those who follow his lead. Following the prince of the kingdom, the sons of disobedience, that's are his goods. Those are the people of his kingdom. But Jesus says, he says, when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Someone much more powerful comes along. And is a threat to this strong man's kingdom. Jesus is speaking of himself. God has set himself as an invading force who attacks and overtakes Satan's kingdom. He rescues souls from Satan's kingdom. Your life is an example of Christ overcoming power over Satan in your life. If you're someone who did not know Christ and now are in Christ, that is Christ raiding the palace of Satan and taking you out and transforming you into the kingdom of light. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. No longer practicing unrighteousness, no longer practicing sin as Satan does, but practicing righteousness. Satan is powerless to stop it. Hebrews 2.14, through death he may destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus healed, he conquered death, he forgives sins, and he transforms souls into his kingdom. Christ is the champion, man. And I think of the song, the Queen song, We Are Champions, My Friend. I mean, Jesus is the champion. I mean, the, 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 the application here is join, on the, join the bandwagon, right? I mean, get on board, because Christ has won. He's far more powerful than Satan. This passage is clearly saying that Christ is attacking, he's overcoming, and he is raiding the palace of Satan. And you who are now, who once were not a part of God's kingdom, are now a part of God's kingdom because of Christ's work and his actions. But he ends the passage with this phrase and this, this, this last sentence that is interesting. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What is he talking about? He's talking about a military conflict. Basically, he transitions from this talking about a strong man, talking about Satan, and he has his armory, and he has his castle, and that Jesus come along, and he's overtaken it. But then he says, there's a conflict. And whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
There's that, that, uh, that great scene in the movie, uh, Remember the Titans, right? If you remember the movie, it's like one of the, it's a really powerful scene where they're at, they're in fall camp, right? They're in Gettysburg. And it, that, it was like, they wake all, everybody up at like, I don't know, like four in the morning, and they had to run this, run, they had to run out in the woods, right? And they go to the, they go to the battlefield, Gettysburg, and, and Coach Boone has this moving speech, right? He, he says, he says, basically, anybody knows what this place is, this is Gettysburg. This is where they fought the Battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we're still fighting against ourselves today. The green field right here is where it was painted red, bubbling with the blood of young boys. Smoke and hot lead poured right through their bodies. Listen to their souls, men. I killed my brother with malice in my heart. Hatred destroyed my family. The Civil War was a brother-against-brother war. There was episodes and stories of brothers literally fighting on opposite sides of war and then fighting against each other in the actual battle. I read that a grandfather fought in a battle against his grandson. Isn't that crazy? You're forced to pick a side, weren't you? You were forced to pick a side. There was no middle ground. You had to pick a side. Either you are with God and his beloved son or you're against There's that great song by Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador of England or France. You may, like, you may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yet, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have money and drugs at your commands. Women in cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. You may call your doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. The thing what Jesus is saying is like, you're going to have to serve somebody either you're with me or you're against me. Here's the deeper conflict. Many Americans, and maybe some of you, are not claiming Christ's work is of the devil. Okay? None of you, and I don't think very few people that I've ever heard go, yeah, yeah, that Jesus... Yeah, he was an agent of Satan. I never heard that before. I don't know if you may have heard that before, um, but rarely, very few people are claiming that as their truth. They're not rejecting Christ's identity as the Son of God and His Savior. A lot of people say Jesus is the Savior, right? He died on the cross. He died for my sins. Most would not call Christ Beelzebub. However, they live a wordless and churchless Christianity. And a wordless and churchless Christianity is a Christless Christianity. If you don't belong to him, if you do not trust in his word, and you do not be a, you're not a part of his church, that's a Christless Christianity. This is where the heresy of the middle ground is rampant. There's a continuation of raging against God and throwing off your cords and seeking freedom from God. You may love Jesus, praise his name, love Jesus, but you hate everything about his word and you hate everything about his church. God's word is rejected. His authority over your decisions is ignored. Others are encouraged to do what feels right, not what is right according to Christ. Therefore, you're not with him, you are against him. J. Christopher Meckham in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, said, Abandoning Christian doctrine is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different than from Christianity. The same is true here. When you rejoice in your freedom to do as you feel without any regards of Christ's lordship over you, you are not a part of him. 
you may want to deny that all you want. You may want to say, well, I love Jesus. That's all that matters. It doesn't. Because these guys in this story, they loved God. They loved him. But they didn't love his Savior. They didn't love his Messiah. They didn't love his Son. The same is true here. The psalmist in chapter 2, what does he say? He says about the Son, about the King. He says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love this. Kiss the Son. What does that mean? Honor the Son. Honor everything he stands for. Honor every word he speaks. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Delight in his word. Meditate on it. Embrace Christ, his power in your life, by coming under his word and, and, and allowing it to bring order to your life. What does Proverbs say, 3, 5 through 6? Don't lean on your own understanding, right? Don't lean on your own understanding. Acquire, uh, 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 when it comes to all your ways and all your path, acknowledge the Lord and he will make straight your path. Right? Acknowledge him. That is someone who is a part of his kingdom. The second thing is Christ's church is rejected. You can fall into the same sin, the heresy of the middle ground, by rejecting Christ's body and his church. Romans 8 9 said, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you do not belong to him. The Spirit of Christ unites people to one another. He does not divide people. He doesn't have the attitude of, like, well, I don't want to be a part of the church. I can be at home and worship Jesus by myself. That is not the Spirit of Christ. It never will, and it never has been the Spirit of Christ. Christ's Spirit is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you reject Christ's church, you do not belong to Christ because you belong to Satan. If you go from church without committing to regular gathering and submitting yourself to the body, you are part of a kingdom that's not of Christ. What does he say here at the end? He says, if you scatter, you don't gather. Right? This is, there's no middle ground that says, I love Jesus, but I don't really like the Bible, and I don't really like the church. These leaders, like I said, have loved God, but hated Christ. Therefore, they love Satan and his kingdom. That's really Jesus' conclusion, isn't he? He's basically saying, since you don't love me, you don't love God. And if you don't love God, you must love Satan. A Christianity that is defined by what you feel is good and right, and is practiced by your own rules outside the fellowship of others, is not Christianity. Rather, it is a faith of your own making. A faith in opposition to God and Christ. Something you have trusted with your thoughts and your feelings and your action, and Christ will overcome that with judgment. He will. He says it right here in this passage. He will overcome. He will attack. There's a huge controversy in the 90s that said, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. And some people kind of accepted that as true. Like, you believe and put your faith in Jesus, but you have to make Christ Lord. This is really postmodern Christianity that you basically can love Jesus but then make up your own rules on the side. I kind of I want to just plead with you, okay? I know we're all a lot of us are millennials here. Uh, we, we 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 do a lot of things through our feelings, right? I mean, I'm one of these people. I I I I, I think a lot of times with my feelings, and a lot of times we want to feel this sense of freedom, right? That we're going to call our own rules. That's just don't do that. Like, you have to base your life off God's word. You have to trust it. You have to abide by it. You have to, uh, all the things that you do, all the decisions you make, you must look to Christ 
to guide you and to follow. That's what discipleship is, to follow Christ. If you make your own rules and define your own Christianity, that is not biblical Christianity and never will be. And by that view and by that pursuit, you are outside the kingdom of Christ. And I do not want you to go your entire life believing that and realizing you've been outside the fellowship of faith the entire time. You said, Lord, Lord, but never believed in him and never served him and never followed him. Stop raging. Stop kicking. Stop screaming. Stop being so against the Lord. Stop trying to define your own your own faith and trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. He is the stronger one. It says it quite clearly in the story. He is the one with power, not you. Rest in his power. I want to end with this. It's great. Uh, I was, we've been reading through, we started reading, we've always been reading the Bible every night with the kids. And I was reading the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, I was like, it was just in the, it was in the list. Like, I didn't go right to that. Like, I read a lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's my favorite story. We were reading it, right? And, and, and I was kind of adding some words because our kids are kind of, they, kind of with their imagination, will play and say they're jumping over lava. Like, oh, that's a lava pit. Let's jump over that. They'll jump from, from like pillow to pillow. This is part of their games. And so instead of saying fire and sulfur came from the sky, I said lava. Right? One of them understand, like, and they're like, what? Lava? Like, really? There's lava, like, flowing into the city? I'm like, yeah, it was crazy. And uh, my, 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 my daughter's like, well, how did they, how did they, how, I asked them the question, well, how did Lot and his family get saved? How did they escape? Well, all that, the God brought them, angels brought them through. Like, you know, he pointed the way and took them out of the city. And she goes, what would have happened? What happened to the people? I said, they died. Really? They died? Yeah. They said, it's God's judgment on these people for their sins. She's like, well, how do you not have, how do you not get, I never see God's judgment. I said, you have to believe in Jesus. She says, well, I want to believe in Jesus. Right? I want, to, I want faith in Christ. And Lincoln's like, me too. Right? They don't want to be, they don't want to be destroyed by the lava. Right? It's quite clearly to them, like, that's the way out of this. Like, children understand this far better than we do as adults, that we, they simplify things because that's all that they know. They go, oh, if that's the consequence of my sin, well, then I want to put my faith in Jesus because then I'll be rescued. Right? And I want to trust in him. Like, let's simplify this for a second. Trust in Christ. Follow Him. Trust His Word. Be faithful to His church. That is, that, that, then you will not fall into this postmodern Christianity. You won't fall into this heresy of the middle room. And if that is any of you here, like, I'd love to talk to you about this. I want you to encourage you through the gospel to find rest in Christ and to trust Him. So Lord, I just want to praise you in your name for your word. And I, I, I want to pray for my friends here. Some I know really well, some not as much, Lord. And my assumption, Lord, in this room is that most people are okay. Like they believe in you, they trust in your word, and they follow you. They're faithful to your church as best they can. But Lord, maybe there is someone in here that they have put their they, they believe that Jesus died for them sins and they but they they do not trust in your word in, in your word. They they are so far from you when it comes to your word in their life. That they basically have designed their own faith and their own religion based off their feelings and not based off what's true in your word. I just want to help them to understand that that is not biblical Christianity. That is not Christian faith. That Christian faith is trusting the work of Christ on the cross, but, but acknowledging him in all of our ways. And pursuing 
faithfulness of Him and trusting in everything that His Word commands on our lives. Lord, I pray that, that they would understand that and they would trust that. They would be moved, Lord, to understanding Your Word and trusting Your Word and um, Your Word guiding them, Lord, convicting them of the sin in their life and moving to repentance and faith. Lord, that is not... If, someone, if, if, if people lack that, Lord... Lord, that your spirit, Lord, would lead them to believe and to trust in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you, Lord. And we pray that this year, this year 2020, that we would trust in you, we would trust in your word, that we would be faithful to your church, Lord, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would help us, that we would find our rest in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper. If I get Denton and um, Shan, if you don't mind helping us um, with this, uh, it's up here on the organ. We've a lot of things back on. Um, the way that we do communion here is this is for believers.